If you have your copies of God's Word, please turn to John chapter 3. The Gospel of John will be in chapter 3. This morning we'll be in verses 22 through 36. John 3, verse 22 through 36. Please follow along as I read. And after this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Anon near Salim, because water was plentiful there. And people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. Verse 25. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing, and all are going to him. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Let's pray once more. Father, please come now in the preaching of your word and open our minds to understand it and open our hearts to receive it and to apply it to our lives, to hear this as the very word of God. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. One of the things I love about the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the book that we're in together in this series of sermons, is that they help us to get Jesus right. I go to the scriptures and especially the gospels and there I get Jesus just as he is. You would know this, right? There are all sorts of false notions out there about who Jesus was and who Jesus is. Those false notions can be found at large in popular culture, be found in literature, they could be found on Uh, Television that could be found in classrooms and sadly, even in some pulpits in churches that don't represent Christ aright as he is in the Bible. But when we go to the Bible, especially when we go to the Gospels, when we take the biblical writers at their word, we get to look at Jesus straight in the face, uh, just as he is. And this is so important for us because you and I have to get Jesus right. We have to know him as he is. We have to follow him as he is. We have to come to him for for what he brings and for what he is in truth according to the word of God. We must understand him according to reality, according to what's true. 
not according to false notions about him conjured up by popular culture, whether that's in the world or, sadly, sometimes in the church. So if you're a Christian this morning, you need to ask yourself this question. Am I worshiping and following the true Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as revealed to us in the pages of Scripture, or have I in some way uh, conjured up a Christ of my own imagination? Do I really know him as he is? Or have I allowed some false notions of him to, to seep in and to perhaps influence or control my view of Jesus Christ? And if you're here today and you're not a Christian, well, I hope that you will make a decision regarding Christ. But if you are to make a decision regarding Christ, it must be based on true notions about him, not vague or false ideas that don't have any foundation in Scripture. So all my cards are on the table. I want you to make a decision to follow Christ, to believe on him, to embrace him as your Savior and your Lord. But if you're to do that, it must be based solely and only on what is true about the Lord Jesus according to his word and not on any false notion not found in scripture. If we're to come to Jesus, we must ask ourselves, what is it I am coming to him for? And that needs to be informed by the Bible. And, and if we're to uh, come to him and to follow him, we must ask ourselves, what am I coming to him as? What do I expect him to do for me and to be to me? And what will be my service and worship to Christ even as I come to him? Who is this Jesus I'm coming to? Well, the passage before us this morning, John 3, verses 22 through 36, is, I find, very helpful, very profitable in showing us who the true Jesus is as the Son of God. We get to look at him right in the face and see him for who he is my prayer is that we'll all have a sense of having had a fuller glimpse of the Lord Jesus as a result of our time in this passage this morning. So I'd like to open up these verses, 22 through 36, under three main headings. The first, we'll consider the preeminence of the Son. The preeminence of the Son. Secondly, the authority of the Son. And thirdly, the command of the Son. The preeminence, the authority, and the command of the Son of God. First, consider with me the preeminence of the Son, the preeminence of the Lord Jesus. Now, that word preeminence is not a word that we use often. Uh, it's a word that, that is somewhat unfamiliar. Maybe if you're a child, you've not heard that word used before, or maybe couldn't give a definition of what preeminence is. So let me uh, help you out here. That word preeminence, it's actually a biblical word. It's used in Colossians 1, and it refers to the status of priority and superiority, the status of priority and superiority. To have the preeminence is to have a position surpassing all others. Okay, so to have the preeminence is to be first in rank, first in honor, first in status, etc. And that's how I'm using the word here with reference to the Lord Jesus, the way that Paul uses it in Colossians 1 when he says that in all things Christ should have the preeminence. He should be first in the place of status and priority and superiority and honor and rank. Christ is preeminent above all things. So now look with me at how this theme is developed in verses 25 through 30 of our text in John 3. Now a discussion arose between John the Baptist's disciples and a Jew over purification. 
And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him, referring to Jesus. John answered, person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. How do we understand that statement from John? A person cannot receive one thing unless it is given him from heaven. I think what John is saying, apparently these these, uh, disciples who have come to him to talk to him uh, about what Jesus is doing, perhaps are trying to uh, generate jealousy or envy in John. Look, that, that one you bore witness to, he's baptizing and everyone's going after him. Perhaps they've forgotten uh, how John himself directed some of his disciples to leave him and to go after Jesus. But nonetheless, it, it seems like maybe they're trying to, to see how John the Baptist is going to respond. It seems like Jesus has more fame than you. He's got more numbers than you have. His baptism is having more success than your own. And I understand John's words in verse 27 to basically say, I, look, I know where my lot comes from. I'm perfectly content with my status and, and position. I'm not complaining that my fame is outstripped by Jesus Christ. Everything I have is given me from heaven. I'm not complaining. John is acknowledging that his station as that voice crying in the wilderness directing people away from himself to Jesus is a gift given him from heaven. He is content. And what is it that's regulating John's contentment? Why is it that he can be so content in his role? Well, his contentment is regulated by his assuredness that Jesus Christ is where he must be in the place of preeminence, that place of priority and superiority and honor and status. See, John the Baptist wants a universe in which he and everybody else orbits around Jesus. Jesus is the center of everything. He's in the place of honor and the place of status and the place of rank. John finds his significance and his place based on where he stands relative to Christ, not the other way around. That's hugely important for all of us to understand. You and I, we find our relevance and our identity and our significance based on where we stand relative to Jesus, not where he stands relative to us. Look, the relevance of Jesus, the relevance of Christ, the Son of God, is not defined by what position he takes relative to you. He's not a piece of furniture you get to arrange in the living room of your life. He is your life. And your life gets its very significance, its very definition, its very identity based on where you stand relative to Jesus. And God will view you and judge you based on where you stand relative to Jesus himself. And in John's world, Jesus is at the center of the universe. And John is content to orbit around Jesus and to establish his relevance and significance based on where Jesus is and where John himself stands relative to Jesus. That's how he likes it. Then in verse 28, John says this, You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. In other words, there's nothing new here. John's like, have you been listening to what I've been saying? And we've seen this again and again already in the first few chapters, right? This is what John's ministry was all about, to direct people away from him to Jesus. So John 1, verse 15, John bore witness about him and cried out, this was he of whom I said. He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. 
Verse 19, when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. John 1, verse 26, John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. Verse 29 of John chapter 1, the next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. John is not mourning the loss of any of his disciples who leave him to go after Jesus. That's what he wants. That's the very purpose of his ministry, to direct people to the Savior. This is not the purpose of this text. This is really just a side note. But for all you Christians who are seeking to disciple younger believers and engage in intentional relationships to disciple people, just always remember this. They're not your disciples. They're the Lord's disciples. And you have the privilege to help them in following Jesus and on their way to make more of Christ and frankly less of you. You don't want them thinking these lofty thoughts of how great you are. As we're gonna see in a moment, we must decrease and Christ must increase. And John is not bothered at all if people are going after Jesus instead of him, okay? Uh, when Jesus walks in the room, uh, uh, priests and pastors and disciples and parents and those who are seeking to mentor others, they become immediately irrelevant in the presence of the great rabbi, the great teacher, the savior, Jesus Christ. And he's the one to whom John is directing his disciples. So, so John's not saying anything new in John 3, verse 28. However, in verse 29, he does employ new language to advance the same point. So look with me at verse 29. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoice, excuse me, stands and hears him, rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, I must decrease. There's a little parable John gives us here to describe the role he's played in this whole affair with Jesus coming into the world. Who's the bridegroom? That's Jesus, okay? Who's the bride? That's the church, that's the elect, that's his disciples, all those who believe on him in faith. And then who's the friend of the bridegroom? Like, like the best man we think about. It's John the Baptist. Christ is the groom, church and all those who follow Jesus are his bride and, and John's just the friend of the bridegroom. He's the best man. And if all the spotlight is on Jesus as the bridegroom and if Jesus has his bride, John is happy. That's job well done for John the Baptist. That's mission accomplished for John the Baptist. His work is done when the bride is safely in the arms of her bridegroom and they are off on their honeymoon. And John says his, his joy is complete if the bride is in the arms of her groom. And that's what John says, this joy of mine is now complete because the groom's come. From heaven he came and he sought her. He's come after his bride and now he will have her. It's beautiful imagery. And, and you know this language, bride and bridegroom, this is the first time it's introduced, I believe, in, in the New Testament. But it's taken up later by other biblical writers. Ephesians 5, the church is referred to as the bride of Christ. Uh, Revelation, also written by the Apostle John, makes reference to the church as the bride of Christ that has been prepared and is now uh, going to enjoy the wedding with her groom who has come for her, namely Jesus. 
And I'll just say, all of you who are Christians, is there any greater privilege? Is there anything sweeter that Christ could say to us than that he regards us as his bride? His blood-bought bride. What tender language. Just how sweet this is. We sang it a moment ago, right? Those he saves are his delight. They're precious in his holy sight. If you're, you're a follower of Jesus, if you're part of his church, you're precious to Christ. You're dear to him. You're his delight. You're his very bride. Beautiful, tender language used here. And then in verse 30, John makes this big sort of programmatic statement regarding his ministry. He says, he must increase. Christ must increase. And I must decrease. More of Jesus, less of me. Jesus, you take the foreground, I'm going to fade into the background. He must increase, but I must decrease. I don't know about you, you might find yourself in this sort of a setting. It's, it's one of the things I think in life I enjoy the most. It doesn't happen often, but when, when you're in a setting in which you have the opportunity along with a large group of people to give honor to someone who really deserves honor. It's a wonderful experience. In, in some some settings, it could be really electrifying, okay? Uh, maybe, maybe you've worked for years with a particular colleague, and now here's the day he or she is going to retire, and they've just done a job well done. And you gather with all the other colleagues at the firm or wherever, and, and this day you're going to honor this individual, and something nice is said, and people applaud this individual, and you just think, isn't this right that this person's being honored for their accomplishments? Maybe you've been in a church setting where a faithful pastor 30 or 40 years is retiring from the ministry and he's faithfully led and shepherded the flock of God and there's this opportunity to, to show honor to that individual and it's, it's a precious thing. I, I've been in the audience at, at ball games where perhaps there's, there's a spouse of a fallen veteran and it's amazing to see thousands and thousands of people applauding the wife of this soldier who has died and, and they all step out of the way to give her honor and everything is directed to her, to, to honor her. It's really an exciting experience. It could be a joy-filled experience to give honor to those to whom honor is due. It's a little bit like what John is talking about here. J John is happy to just get out of the way of that individual who deserves honor. J just like you know, if someone were to stand in the way of that spouse of that fallen veteran and try to take the, take the spotlight with her. How terrible would that be? It would be so inappropriate. And you would never want to do that yourself. You just want to get out of the way and show honor to whom honor is due. It's a little bit like what John is doing. He says, look, I'm not going to stand there and put my arm around Jesus and share the spotlight. I am happy to fade into the audience of eager admirers and worshipers. Let all the spotlight be on him to worship and adore him. I'm happy to decrease, and indeed I must decrease if he is going to increase. For John, and this should be true for every Christian, seeing Jesus receive such honor and such praise and such glory is the greatest joy of John's life. It should be the greatest joy of our lives. He must increase and we must decrease. This is the theme of John's ministry. Let Christ, the Son of God, have the preeminence. I must decrease. I must step out of the spotlight. I must slip into the crowd of admirers and worshipers and give Jesus the place of preeminence. And listen, the very same sentiment from John ought to be found in each one of our hearts, that he would decrease and take the place of 
excuse me, that he would increase and take the place of honor and status and that we would decrease. He must have the place of preeminence in my life and my church and in this world. Now I said that word preeminence is used in the scriptures. It's used in Colossians chapter one where Paul provides a very famous statement about Christ that many believe was later used as a, a, a hymn in the church or a, a creed or something like that. It's very interesting. If you look at this text in Colossians one, I'm gonna read it in a moment, verses 15 through 18. There are tremendous parallels between what Paul says there and what we've already seen in John chapter one, two, and three. Let me read this statement about the preeminence of Christ from Colossians one, verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might have the preeminence. Now listen, there are two types of people in the world, and there's two types of people in this room. On the one hand, there are those who hear a statement like that, and they say, yes, amen, that's my Jesus and he will have the place of preeminence in my heart and in my church and in this world. Oh, I love for him to have that, that place of honor and status and glory. That's the joy of my life, that's what I live for, and that's what I will celebrate for all eternity. And then on the other hand, there are those who hear that statement in Colossians 1, who hear that statement from John, he must increase, I must decrease, and it's, it's strangely offensive to them maybe even a little bit threatening, the idea that Jesus would have the preeminence in my life. Look, I'm looking out for number one, namely me. And, and Jesus, I mean, I can carve out a place for Jesus, but the preeminence? That sounds a little obsessive. My whole life's supposed to orbit around him? No, 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 no. I'm in this for myself, and Jesus can have a place, but my life is about me. And if Christianity requires to put Jesus at the very center of my life, I'm not really interested. Two kinds of people in the world, and I'm sure two kinds of people in this room. Those who are happy to say he must increase and I must decrease, and those who find that a threat. Well, there's no question where John lands on this. Uh, he must decrease, and he is happy to give Christ the place of preeminence. May we follow him in that. So that's the first heading, the preeminence of the Son. But next, this text reveals to us the authority of the Son. The authority of the Son in verses 31 and following. Now, I don't know how your translation of the Bible has it, but it's my personal understanding that verse 31 and following are no longer the words of John the Baptist. So there should be kind of a closed quote at the end of verse 30. And we're not gonna hear from John the Baptist again for the rest of this book. In verse 31, I understand John the Apostle, the writer of this gospel, to be picking up with his commentary now in verses 31 and following. So let's read it together. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this that God is true. 
For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. So here's the question I want to ask of these verses. How is it that Jesus has authority? Why is it that Jesus has authority? What gives him that place of honor and status whereby he has authority over all? Five answers given in this text. We'll quickly go through each one. First of all, uh, Jesus has authority because he comes from heaven. Verse 31, he who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. Very simply, Jesus is from above and therefore he's above everybody. There is an inherent authority and dignity and status that is associated with being from above, being from heaven. Okay? Second way in which we see Christ's authority, he has authority because he has seen God, namely the Father. He has seen the Father. Verse 32, he bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. We've seen this, haven't we already? John 1, verse 18, no one has ever seen God except the only God who is at the Father's side, namely Jesus, and he has made him known. John 6, 46, Jesus said, no one has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. John 8, verse 38, I speak of what I have seen with my Father. And John is going to refer to Jesus having seen God or seen the Father or having been sent from the Father literally in every single chapter in this gospel until we get to the crucifixion in John chapter 19. It's gonna come up again and again and again. He's been there. He's seen God. He knows what the throne room looks like. He knows the eternal counsels of the Godhead. And to him the Spirit's been given. And he speaks for God. He speaks of what he has seen and what he has heard. Third way in which we see Jesus' authority in this passage. Jesus has authority because he speaks for God. He's God's delegate, his ambassador, the one who speaks for him. Verse 33 Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God. That statement in verse 33, whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. In other words, if you hear what Jesus is saying and you say that's right, that's true. That's the same thing as saying that God is true. If you agree with Jesus, you agree with God. If you receive his testimony, you receive the testimony of God himself. And this is where so many people go wrong. So many people go wrong. You cannot receive Jesus, the human prophet, or Jesus, the human teacher, or Jesus, the social commentator, or Jesus, the, the wise sage, or Jesus, the great ethicist. You receive him as God or nothing else. To receive him as anything other than God is equal to rejecting him entirely. Jesus will not allow you to embrace him on any other terms. You must receive him as God and everything else is equal to rejecting him. So don't make a pretense of honoring Jesus by agreeing to receive some of his claims. That business about love your neighbor as yourself, I think he was on to something. And I really like that about Jesus. Look, he's either the firstborn of all creation and the creator himself, the living God, or he's a liar, a lunatic, or some sort of fanatic who has deceived us all. 
You receive Jesus on his terms. And he's telling us here, he is God himself. If you receive Jesus, you're receiving God. If you say he's right, you're saying God is right. God is true. Fourth way in which we see the authority of the Son. Because to him, the Spirit is given without measure. Now, I know in English it doesn't read that way, but that's the idea in Greek. It's not that Jesus has the Spirit and he's giving it without measure to lots of people. It's that to Jesus, the Spirit is given without measure. John the Baptist said this, right? In John 1, verse 33, I myself did not know him, he said, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. Spirit descended on Jesus and remained on him. To him was given the Spirit without measure, the seal from God that he is my appointed representative, my own dear Son in whom I'm well pleased. And then the fifth and final way in which we see the authority of the Son is in verse 35. Christ has authority because the Father has given all authority to the Son. Verse 35, the Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hands. All things have been placed in Jesus' hands. You're going to have to go to Him. He's the one with whom each soul must have dealings. We must go to the Father through the Son. Again, side note, not the purpose of this passage, but the fact that all things have been given into Jesus' hands is very good news. Very, very good news. Here are a couple of ways the Gospels apply this. What does Jesus say when He gives the Great Commission? all authority has been given to me. I got all the power, all the authority. It's been given me by my Father in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go. Why do we have any, why should we have any confidence we're going to reach anybody for Christ? Why should the church have any confidence going into unreached people groups all around the world and seeking to introduce them to the Lord Jesus? Where does that confidence come from? Well, it comes from this authority given to Jesus to command his church. The authority he has in all things. It's a great comfort to us. It's also applied in this sense that you and I are eternally secure with God precisely because Jesus has all authority. That, that idea that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. He has all authority, all power. We can't be taken away from him. All authority has been given to the Son and he forgives us embraces us and calls us his very own brothers and sisters and therefore we're right with him. This is good news that the Son has all authority. But the third and final point, and I really do think this is the climax of this passage. We've seen the preeminence of the Son, the authority of the Son, now thirdly and finally, the command of the Son. So he's got the place of honor, status, rank, glory. He has authority over all things and he gives this command, the command of the Son. Verse 36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. In this verse, the summons of the gospel, namely the summons to faith, is given in terms of a command. Very often it's given in terms of a promise. In this text, it's given in terms of a command because it says, whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God 
remains on him. You see, I miss the command. I don't see a command in this text. I just see that statement, believe on the Son. Well, I believe that is the command. You know this, right? I mean, the gospel is often conveyed as a free offer, as an invitation. And in other places throughout the scriptures, it's a command. It's something we must obey. It's something we should want to obey, but nonetheless, it's something we must obey. The call to repent and believe. This is the command of the Son, to believe on Him and have everlasting life. But if anyone does not obey the Son, the wrath of God remains on him. Faith, believing on Jesus, embracing Him for all that He is, is a duty. It is a command that God gives to each one of us. And aren't we thankful? The command is not to do 100 push-ups. The command is not to somehow get a 1600 on your SAT. The command is not to conjure up some sort of complicated system of rituals by which you can be made right with God. The command is simply this, to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and to enjoy the eternal life that comes only in Him. That's the command. It's a gracious command. It's a glorious command. Now let's be clear, the command does involve a cost. Wouldn't deny that at all. Luke 9, 23, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. There's a cost to discipleship and to embracing this command. Believing in Jesus is different than believing in Santa Claus or something like that. Believing in Jesus comes to define your whole life. The way you live, the decisions you make, how you spend your money, how you spend your free time, your relationships with your family and with your friends and with unbelievers, all things are affected by the decision to embrace this command and to believe in Jesus. The command to believe is an all-embracing command that comes to define us. Faith, says the Presbyterian theologian John Murray, is a whole-souled movement of self-commitment to Christ for salvation from sin and its consequences. There's no such thing as half-hearted faith. I mean, there is such a thing, but half-hearted faith doesn't save. Faith is a whole-souled commitment to Jesus. It is taking all that I am and all that I have on Him for salvation and for eternal life. And the promise to those who obey the gospel and who obey this command of the Son, who believe on Him, is that they will have everlasting life. They will inherit paradise forever with God. It's a promise that Jesus gives to all those who obey this command of the Son. But if I don't want to obey His command to believe, What if I don't give him the place of preeminence in my life? What if I don't acknowledge his authority? What if I don't obey his command to believe? Then what? It's very, very simple. Just a few words we have it in our text. Whoever does not obey the Son, verse 36, shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Disobey the Son, You shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. You remember the verse we considered last week, John 3, 18? Whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. If you don't believe on Jesus, 
The sentence is already hanging over your head. You're condemned already. And here John says, if you don't believe on Jesus and obey this command to believe, the wrath of God remains on you. Okay, Emmanuel, take a deep breath, okay? Take a deep breath. Something we have to be really, really clear on. Make no mistake. People are perishing. Hell is real. And wrath is coming. People are perishing. Hell is real. And wrath is coming. It's clearly taught in the Bible. Clearly taught. It is part of the Christian message that is almost entirely evacuated modern preaching. That people are perishing, hell is real, and the wrath of God is coming. And sadly, even churches that profess to engage in expository preaching can be guilty of this. There are churches you could go to for five years, ten years, never even hear the word hell mentioned. You've heard that sort of preaching, right, that offers Jesus just for all the benefits he brings, but there's no sense of escaping anything. So it's, it's you need Jesus in your life. Accepting Jesus, that's God's best for you. Well, what if I don't want Jesus? People are perishing. Hell is real. Wrath is coming. And it's right here in this text and in the text we considered last week. If anyone does not obey the Son, the wrath of God remains on him. I'll just say as a side note, that sort of preaching that doesn't even acknowledge wrath, doesn't even acknowledge hell, doesn't make any sense to me. The gospel makes no sense apart from judgment and wrath and condemnation. That's the very backdrop of the gospel, which is what? Good news. Well, it's not good news to me if I don't appreciate the predicament I'm in. If I don't see myself as perishing, what does it matter to me that Jesus came and died to forgive sins? It means nothing to me. I could take it or leave it. Listen, we don't commend Christ because, man, the Christian life is just the way to live. There's a lot of benefits that will accrue to your life if you just believe on Jesus. You'll be happier. Your marriage will be healthier. Your kids will live long and prosper. That is not the Christian gospel. The Christian gospel is you can flee the wrath to come by embracing the salvation offered in Jesus Christ through repentance and faith. That's the Christian message. That's the Christian gospel. Condemnation, wrath, and hell are part of the Christian message, and they form the very backdrop of the gospel itself. And the church must not neglect to expose people to the reality of divine judgment and wrath. I'm convinced that to do so is cowardly. To do so is spineless. To do so is costly to the mission of the church. You want to guarantee the extinction of Christian missions in a generation? Get rid of the doctrine of hell. There's no need to go to a world that's not perishing, right? Why would I pack up all my things and go somewhere and spread Christ? People aren't perishing. I so appreciated it. Graduated from Southeastern Seminary in Wake Forest, and uh, president there, Danny Aiken. It's the end of the term, final chapel service. All the kids are going to go home. Members of the board of trustees are there. All the parents are there. And what does Danny preach on? The biblical doctrine of hell. Southeastern is a great commission seminary. And he sought to charge the students that if, 
If you let go of this biblical doctrine, it is deadly to the Great Commission. No one risks their lives to go to people who aren't perishing. But if they're perishing, it's worth risking all. I say, well done, Dr. Aiken. That's what a preaching is needed in our day. I'll say, brothers here who are training for ministry, we have uh, several of you. What a gift it is to our church to have you in our body. Your stewardship from Christ to us, and we love you and we pray for you. We want you men to be raised up, but listen to me. If you're not convinced of the doctrine of hell and the need to go to a world that is perishing and to warn them that they must flee the wrath to come and embrace salvation that's offered them, you're not ready to preach. Until you're ready to herald that message, you're not ready to preach. Brothers, I urge you, commit yourself. I will teach the whole counsel of God. I will be faithful to the faith once for all delivered to the saints. I will guard the gospel of grace, and I will go to a world that is perishing, and I will proclaim to them the good news by which they can escape the wrath to come. We have it here in our text. If you do not obey the Son, if you reject Jesus, the wrath of God remains on you. But then here comes the soul that is frightened of coming judgment, this gracious command and promise from Jesus that if you believe on him, you will not be condemned. If you embrace him by faith, you will escape judgment. You will not perish, John says, but you will have everlasting life. You will escape the wrath to come. You will be given paradise forever with the Lord Jesus. Now listen to me, those of you who are outside of Christ, and you hear a verse like that in verse 36, if I don't embrace Christ, if I don't obey the Son, the wrath of God remains on me. Listen, make no mistake, the wrath of God will be poured out on every single sin ever committed. It will be poured out on every single sin ever committed. Your sin will be punished. It will be punished. Every person's sins will be punished in one of two places either in hell for all eternity or at Calvary, at the cross of Jesus Christ. Oh, the wrath of God is coming, but it can be poured out on the Lord Jesus in your place. Your sins laid on him like a lamb who slaughtered and satisfies God's wrath. Your sins will be punished in one of two places, hell for all eternity or at the cross of Jesus Christ. This is a, a precious promise that if you believe on the Son and embrace the provision that God has given in the Lord Jesus, the wrath of God is satisfied in Jesus and you have nothing to fear. You have nothing to fear. No condemnation to dread. There's nothing to fear for those who are in Christ Jesus. But if you don't obey the Son, the wrath of God remains on you. And you can anticipate that wrath being experienced forever in hell. And I'm throwing out to you against that backdrop that the world is perishing and even you are perishing if you're outside of Christ. I throw out this promise, this offer, this gracious command from the Son to believe upon Him and to be saved. You will have everlasting life. You will escape condemnation and judgment if you put your faith in the only Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ.
Let's pray together. Our Father, these are heavy truths. Heavy truths. Who can stand in the face of prospects? Divine wrath and judgment. The coming of a holy God to address rebellious sinners. Which of us could stand in the face of such a prospect? Where can we hide? Where can we run? Where can we find refuge? Where can we find light in the midst of darkness and life in the midst of so much death and pain and judgment? We thank you that we can find it in your Son. We could find it in Jesus, who is a Savior for sinners, who is a, a refuge to all those who are weary and heavy laden and beat down by sin and know of their need of a Savior. Lord, cause our sinful hearts to run out to him and to embrace his mercy. That though our sins are so many, though they cover us from head to toe, though they are like scarlet, your mercy is more in Christ. And we can know salvation through him, a washing through him, a cleansing through him, by which we can be received into your presence and glory. In paradise, we can be given eternal life. Lord, we pray, make us willing to come to you, to embrace your provision in your Son, the Lord Jesus, and to inherit eternal life forevermore. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.